You're listening to the Brick by Brick podcast, where we take you from the ground up on real estate investing. Join us on our entrepreneurial voyage through the world of flipping houses, managing rental property, and building a real estate empire. Welcome back to episode 21. We are now of legal drinking age. <laughs> and uh, uh, I guess you could be drafted to the military at 18. And can you buy cigarettes at 18? I don't, I don't know. I think it's state by state. I think it's oh, maybe really? 19 now, 19? 21 in some well, states. Okay, so we've, we've been doing that for a long time. Yeah, right? <laughs> that was a whole two episodes ago. So this episode, we're doing something a little bit different and we're hoping to create a recurring series out of this, but we we talked about in a episode several episodes ago about the technology tools that we use, and one of them is Slack. And uh, we've used this religiously for the past, I would say, eight months or so. And we have a channel in Slack called the Mistakes Channel, which is just where, when Ryan and I remember it, we put in all the mistakes that we've made so that we can learn from them. And we've never really gone through that channel either internally or for whatever. And we thought it'd be fun this episode to just go through all of the mistakes that we've made, or at least that we've listed in this channel that we've made. Yeah. And at least those that aren't um, personally, you know, damning against other people. So um, yeah, so we're going to go, I would say at the outset, a lot of the mistakes are, uh, or some of them are construction related. I think some of them are acquisition related. Some of them are maybe more, business related. So we're going to get all of them. And this probably isn't even scratching the surface of all of the mistakes that could be in the channel, but these are, as John alluded to, just the ones that we have, that have made their way into the channel thus far. I don't know if that means that they're the most egregious or the least egregious or that has no correlation, but they're the something. They're the, they're the ones that just happen and we happen to remember to put them there. They're so. the lucky three dozen or so. Yeah. I wonder how many are in here. We will soon find oh, out. We're about to find out. All right, um, so shall we take it from the top? Yeah. The first group of mistakes, this is from, just put it to, this is from August. So we started the channel on August 5th. So we, we put a lot in there on August 5th. We had some pent up mistakes. <laughs> but uh, so the, the first we have are a bunch of things that have to do with construction. So, or I guess the very first one is not. Insurance it's, related. It's insurance requirements. So this is, this is great. Do you want to talk about this? So I, I think the circumstances that, made the, or that brought this front and center on our minds was that oftentimes we'll find ourselves scrambling. We're usually on a pretty tight time crunch to get to the closing table on a deal. And one of the things that we like to tee up before or that you really have to tee up prior to closing is your insurance policy. And uh, I think oftentimes we tend to scramble to make sure that the policy is ready to be bound at the time of closing. And so one of the things that we have, I think, gotten better better at, but that we originally struggled with was making sure that the insurance policies that we were getting were not only going to be acceptable to us, but acceptable to our lender. Sometimes they have very particular requirements, or if you're going to deviate from what their standard requirements are, it requires another letter, uh, another level of approval or a waiver of some sort. So getting a head start on that is probably the best way to go, because if you can provide a comprehensive list of insurance requirements from the very beginning, from your lender to your insurance broker, then your insurance broker can know that when they're going out to market, they can know that when they're going out to market, the policies that they're going to get are going to be compliant or maybe will be non-compliant for one reason or another. And then you can uh, pursue a waiver with your lender if that's yeah. if that's an option. Yeah, I think uh, many times we've just forgotten about the insurance requirement until the day of the closing and then realize that because we have properties in flood zones and hurricane zones and like whatever, that the lenders have their own particular requirements. If you're, if you're using a lender who's just not, a random guy and they actually have like institutional requirements as ryan said i think it's important to get ahead of that yeah and some of the some of the things that they may call out specifically i think what brought this up was that there was a policy or a quote that we had received for a policy that had a wind and hailings exclusion i think that may have been specifically on the builder's risk portion yeah. of the policy not on the general liability policy but i guess that always going to be the case because I don't think general liability, I don't think right. wind and hail perils fall under the, the yeah. auspices of... When it wasn't flood, it was just... Uh, right. Yeah. It was the builder's risk. The builder's risk, yeah. 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 But things like that, like they're, it's, it's very easy to just think about insurance as binary, either you have it or you don't. But the reality is that there's a lot to insurance. 
And yeah, at some point we'll probably get an insurance specialist on here to do an episode on that. Yeah, if someone could explain to me why whenever we bind flood insurance with a given provider here in New Jersey that I receive a box of uh, straws in the mail, that would be very helpful. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe like a raft would be more. No, I mean, it's like paper straws. But then the thing that I do with the paper, first of all, they're not the appropriate length because they have to fit in like a mailbox. So they're like too small to be an actual straw. And they're also made of paper. Not that there's anything wrong with paper straws. But I think, you know, the idea is that they're supposed to be more environmentally friendly. But I don't have a need for straws, nor do I have a need for paper straws, nor do I have a need for a straw. If I did have straws, I would want a normal size straw, not like a quarter of the length. So I just throw them away immediately, which probably defeats the entire purpose of... They are no longer sustainable. Yeah. All right. Uh, the (laughs) The next mistake that we have listed here... And forgive us because we'll probably be deciphering some of these in real time. Uh, but we, what we have written down are fire-rated doors for common areas. So oftentimes in a multifamily dwelling, to be compliant with building code and with fire safety code, any doors connecting an apartment to a common area of the building will have to be fire-rated. I think generally what they look for is a 90-minute fire rating. Uh, and those doors can actually be quite expensive. They generally look like a standard six-panel steel door, but they're, I think, from what we've seen, they're always of the pre-hung variety because I think the frame has something to do with the fire-ratedness of the door itself. I think we've seen slabs that don't have six panels, right? Just like like kind of like like prison slabs. Yeah. Yeah. But I think those doors, I think... I think Home Depot sells them for like three sixty six a pop or something like that. So they're pretty right. expensive. And when you're talking about when you're talking about a two or a three family dwelling, sometimes, oftentimes with two separate entrance entrances for each unit, you could quickly be looking at a few grand just for these fire-rated doors. Yeah, I think we've been dinged on that a few times with inspections. Yeah. yeah, as I recall. One thing that we're one workaround that we had that I think maybe saved us. From having to get like an extra fire door was that we had we had an apartment that originally had three entrances and we reconfigured the layout so that there so that two of the original entrances became uh they were enclosed in a hallway yeah. that became part of that unit so that we only needed one fire door and then the rest could be interior doors right you may find a way to to navigate that in a little bit more cost-effective of a manner, but the reality is those requirements are there for a reason and yeah, we implore you to follow them. If you want a like an aesthetic door, like a nice-looking door to match maybe your other doors, if you have like a different, mm-hmm. something different. Yeah, like a like five-panel versus a six-panel. Right, right. You're going to have to almost certainly special order that. I don't even, uh, I've never even I've never seen, seen them. I'm not even sure that they exist. I don't but. Even know. Yeah. So that's something to consider is um, your like entrance door to an apartment might be different than the other doors of the apartment. But okay. So a mistake number three I have here is sufficient CO2 and smoke alarms. I don't really remember how that came up. I'm not sure either. I think that that's something, I know that's something I've dealt with in the past. It's something that I know inspectors always look for. Usually it's the fire inspector. We've actually, so in one, in one instance, we ran into a situation where we had passed the fire subcode inspection, but then there was a separate smoke cert inspection yeah. through the fire department rather than through the building department yep. in order to transfer title. So that was upon upon selling a property. And that inspector had an issue with something that the fire subcode inspector had passed. So uh, we ended up... I, Fortunately, it was something that was just like a, I think a defect in one of the smokes, in one of the interconnected smoke detectors that he observed that the other guy had missed. So our electrician just came back and took care of it, swapped it out, and it was no big deal. But that's something that these building departments and fire departments take quite seriously. So ensure that you're in compliance because they're going to, they'll find it if you're not. Yeah. And it's, it's actually different per municipality up here in New Jersey, for sure. Some municipalities will do like a CO a certificate of occupancy inspection each time there's a new tenant. And that can be very onerous because then that'll usually, the whole inspection is usually like, do the smoke detectors work or the CO detectors or whatever. Other times you will will have that inspection on transfer, like on sale. Other times you'll never have that inspection or only if you do renovations or this or that. So it can become, it's something to be aware of if you, uh, it's like, for me, it's, it's both relevant to 
construction and also just to renting it out because like I think even the DCA in say, New Jersey has yeah. has their own they'll, rule they'll of the catch state. that too. Yeah. yeah. Even if you're not doing work or selling the property, it's something that you can still get. Right. It's uh, like a management for. thing. Yeah. And then the other thing to keep in mind on that front too is that there are there may be different requirements for when you need a battery battery operated smoke detector versus an interconnected hardwired smoke detector right. versus a combination smoke and carbon monoxide detector. Best course of action is generally to check with the building department to see what they require or to run it through your electrician, assuming your electrician has adequate knowledge of what the building right, code re- right. requires. This next one is snake number four on our list here. This is a great, a great one um, that we've dealt with, which is ensure that electrical breakers are sized to adequate loads, specifically for window air conditioners and uh, I think for space heaters. So this is a problem that I've encountered, we've encountered a lot, which is that we will have for listeners that don't live in the greater New York area or the Northeast, I would say uncommon for older homes to have central air and, and central heating, forced air heating. So many of the homes that we rent out have baseboard heating or radi- radiant heating radiators. But for air conditioning, we will have window mounted air conditioner units. And if you plug a window AC unit into a normal outlet, and then also plug in another appliance into that same circuit, like a microwave or a hairdryer or something, you will definitely absolutely trip the circuit. And even sometimes just the air conditioner alone can trip the circuit. So we had that in a property where we were plugging in an air conditioner, they kept running the air conditioner, and then every five minutes when the compressor ran for the air conditioner, the circuit would trip. And that's something that we could have known earlier on. We could have thought about it when we were renovating the house and say, okay, this is going to be like the air conditioner circuit, uh, like this this outlet, but um, we didn't think about that. So then we had to rerun a new dedicated outlet at great expense to fix it. Something else to keep in mind on that front is when you're sizing those circuits properly, make sure that you think through what the layout is going to be because if you are putting a circuit in for a window air conditioner, for example, your room may have multiple windows and you're going to want to put the outlet closest to the window where the air conditioner should be located. If you're thinking about the logical layout of a room, there may be one wall that is like an obvious location for a bed and you're probably not going to want to have the window air conditioner right above the bed because it's going to be uncomfortable when you have it running mm-hmm. overnight. So putting it on the other win- or on another wall where the other window is located uh, is probably going to lead to a more comfortable experience for whoever lives there. Yeah. And this is a big thing too. I, I hear a lot of uh, investors and people talk about this. They'll say stuff like, oh, you know, I, I upgraded the service to my house to like 100 amp service or 200 amp service. And then I still get outlets that trip. That has the, the service coming into your house has nothing to do with whether or not your outlets are going to trip. It has to do with uh, the, the load on that individual circuit. So a circuit could mean like one outlet, like you can have a dedicated outlet for, I think by code, you have to have a dedicated outlet for like a refrigerator or something like that. But another circuit could supply like three or four or six or a ton of outlets and lights and all sorts of stuff. So it's helpful if you have plans, usually plans, electrical plans will show the circuits, like how many outlets and lights are on a circuit. Or I guess sometimes they will, they'll they'll show at least like a switch relative to, to lights. But if you're renovating an old house, you're not going to have that. If you don't have plans, you're not going to have that. So we had a house that was renovated by a previous contractor where they ran one circuit for an entire floor. Like the third level of a house was one circuit, which was, I don't know, probably eight outlets and at least two overhead lights, uh, maybe three overhead lights. Yeah, it was a whole, it was a whole, a, a hallway, hallway and yeah. two bedrooms, one of which was quite large, right. like more and of a living room than a bedroom. So we had two air conditioners on that, plus all the other things that you would normally have in, in a third floor of a, of a house. And that was a big problem. So, Which is yeah. why we had to ultimately run another new dedicated right. line for service that had been brand new six months six prior. Six months before, yeah. yeah. Yep. Next thing that we have on the list is take photos of all rough work prior to closing up walls. Most, the main reason for this is to ensure that we know the locations of all plumbing, electrical, and HVAC lines and valves. When I've done this, this has actually saved me a few times. When I haven't done this, it has come back to bite me more than once. I think the reason for this is pretty obvious, but once sheetrock goes up, you're not going to be able to see behind the walls. And if something gets buried and you need to find it, it's going to be, it's going to save you a lot of time to be able to pinpoint exactly where it was located based on a photo that you have from beforehand. 
we had this where the gas line was off or right. water line was off. Was ga- I think it was a gas, gas line, line was behind off. The, wall. the valve was off and somehow it got closed up and we didn't know exactly where it was. We had to rip open a bunch of sheetrock right. to find it just right. to turn a valve on. Right. Fortunately, somebody had a, a pretty good rec- recollection of about where, where it was going, where it was located. So when they had to rip open the wall, they pretty much got it on the first try, but that could have been a disaster when we had finished walls already painted and trimmed out. Yeah, that was also the, uh, I think the same house where a thermal image uh, <laughs> displayed a hot spot in a, in a ceiling, which I still don't know what that was, except to say it is a hot water uh, supply line. <laughs> but I guess if we had a picture of where those lines were, we could have said, yeah, it's just a hot water supply line. That's a good point. Next thing we've got on here is to test sewer lines. This one I think is particularly relevant if you have a house that is that has been vacant and where you haven't had people living there for some time to where you can at least have some reasonable expectation that things are running properly. We actually had to do this for one project as a city requirement to get through, uh, to get our plumbing permits or to get our, really our, all of our permits. Can I tell the story about that? That's one of my favorite uh, stories. So we had a, there's a municipality in New Jersey that requires a, um, scope of a sewer line to get uh, permits. But what that means is that you essentially have a, a cable that has a camera on the end of it and you run it through the entire sewer line. But this requirement is so insane because, uh, you know, it, it's just, it's literally a camera that's running through a sewer line. So the sewer line, there's no, it's not like the sewer line has like an address on it or something like that under <laughs> under the ground. And it's just a, a sewer line. You know that every sewer line is tagged every 15 feet <laughs> from the inside? Like UPC codes, and like RFID codes. Yeah, I mean, so this sewer line is probably 100 years old. So we're running it, you know, from the street. And we have this plumber who's never done this before. And we didn't really want to spend money to, like, get the right equipment. So it's basically a plumber holding uh, his phone up to a a like video from like a really old school camera. And he doesn't really understand what this, the point of this is. So he's like narrating this for us. I think that our plumber said he like he thought he was uh, like like going into like a black hole or something, right? Is like narrating, you know, like some like physics, uh, Ast- astrophysics. Yeah, exactly. So like the, we the, should have gotten Neil deGrasse Tyson to narrate. Yeah, exactly. Like Neil deGrasse, to, like you know, into the universe sort of thing. So there's like this plumber, there's like New Jersey plumber, is like like you see right here, like that's a crack, and then we've got some water here, like we're moving. And obviously, like these things are not what you want to be said when you're submitting this for like approval. You don't want to like show all the cracks and like all the shitty things that's going. So I think I just edited it to like remove all of the audio or something, like, and kind of like speed it up. Like I like, edited this thing and submitted <laughs> it, and like, but like, it occurred to me that it could, like, I could just take a a video of like my own own sewer right. line and, submit it and say it's yeah it's a sewer line so yeah it's a great regulation that they have for that it could be helpful for if you're already going to be doing work if you know that you're going to have to replace a sewer line it's much better to know at the beginning of the project yeah. than once everything is connected and closed up and you go to test your brand new toilet and it backs up on you um if you're already going to be doing maybe you're repaving the driveway or if you're already running a new gas line or if the electric utility is doing some work or you're removing an oil tank, any one of those reasons may be, may be a cause to dig up a driveway or to trench something out already. So if you're going to be doing that once, you may as well kill two birds with one stone and right. that'll save you on the cost of the sewer line yep. replacement. The next one I see here is identify the size of the electrical service entering the building. So this is a little bit related to what we were saying before about the breakers, but um, this came up because... We're renovating a house and um, we, it's actually an ongoing issue. It's still, as of this moment, it's not resolved. I think you were at this house this morning trying to resolve it. But um, we have, it's a multifamily house. I, I think the existing service was 100 amps. Yeah, it was 100 amps. We were under the belief that we wanted to get 200 amp service into the house as part of an upgrade to the whole electrical service. And we had a contractor right on their... Um, a contract, electrical contractor, right? 200 amp service. Which we had the audacity to believe meant, the meant that we would actually of get 200 a 200 amp, amp service. Right. He claimed that this was an error, a mistake. He was just wrong. And then the actual service coming into the house, he thought was 200 amps, but it was really 100 amps, which is almost impossible to believe because the house hadn't been renovated in like 60 years. They didn't have 200 amp service for, this wasn't common, you know, before recently. So if you're doing work like that, I would say be aware of the electrical service coming into the house and also be aware if you want to change it and be purposeful about changing it because to change it is more than just saying, I want to change it. It requires 
probably like a cut card from the municipality it requires coordinating with the utility company. It requires changing meters, changing grounding lines, changing all sorts of stuff. Perhaps more so than anything that I've been involved with on the construction side of things. I think this is the kind of thing that gets lost into the abyss of bureaucracy. Mm-hmm. And I think like that this particular saga has been ongoing for six months, I would yeah. say. So I think we're finally at the, at a resolution to where we're going to have electricity. But in the meantime, we've been relegated to using a generator to keep move, keep things moving over there. Yeah, which has not been good. Next, we have review contract for key variables. Deposit amount. This is, uh, specifically, this is with respect to making an offer or... Sales contract, yeah. yeah. A purchase contract for real estate. So review contract for key variables. Deposit amount. Inspection contingency. Financing contingency. Time to close specifically uh, with respect to a cash transaction or a hard money loan or conventionally financed deal. Look for the presence of an oil tank contingency who's responsible for a CO or similar municipal approval, some state-specific filings. Like for us in New Jersey here, we have a bulk sales filing that's typically required on the transfer of real estate. I think this is relevant for us because we often submit different types of offers on different types of projects. Yeah. So for something that's a turnkey three family rental that we would conventionally finance because it makes sense to just have permanent financing on the property from day one onward, we're going to use a much different purchase contract than for a bank owned two family that we know needs a full gut renovation and that we're going to be pursuing hard money or private money to finance the acquisition and renovation of um, with an eye towards refinancing that down the line. Yeah, I think that this actually gets into a topic that I don't think we've discussed that much on this uh, podcast, but sort of the legal aspects of uh, closing these properties. And so the sales contract is very important. And in New Jersey, I think in most states, there's like a, a broker standard contract that has standard terms, but it's not it's not very uncommon if you're not using a broker to just come up with your own sales contract. And within those contracts, there are like operative terms that are important that you as the buyer or seller will have a different desire than the other party. And A, knowing what those are is is important. So what Ryan just said are some of those operative terms. And then B, knowing like where you want to be on those terms is important. So generally as a buyer, you want to have all the opportunities to get out of the contract that you can. So contingencies meaning if I don't like the... Um, the inspection, I can cancel the contract or if I can't get financing or if there's an oil tank or this or that. The seller doesn't want those at all because they can just sort of be used as a means to get out of the contract and then you're you're out the amount of time that it's spent to go through that um, that process. So I think for, it's, a, it, it's a mistake for us just to say, make sure that we're aware of all those things. If you have, you're submitting a lot of offers and contracts, you can like forget about those. We, we got, we got um, uh, in trouble on one of those one time. I think we submitted an offer and we, um, we said we we're going to get conventional financing, but we had a 10 or a 30 day close, which uh, is almost impossible. So uh, this is like a commercial loan. So take us to the next one, John. This is a, a specific one, but a good one, which is double check materials with subcontractors and ensure appropriate dimensions dimensions for appliances. So what this means specifically is I think in many projects that we've done, we've done, so in a, in a construction process, there's the rough stage where you run rough plumbing, rough electrical ducts for HVAC if you're doing that. And I think in, in many cases we've run rough plumbing, which is essentially the water supply lines and the sewer lines, the drain lines, in the wrong place relative to where they need to be for say the kitchen sink or a toilet or whatever, because we either the plans were not very clear about exactly where they had to be run, or maybe we didn't have the the actual things we were going to install at the time or whatever. And so that meant that when we, when it was time to actually mount those appliances put in the sink or whatever, we had to rip open the wall, move the plumbing over two inches or do whatever else. Or maybe we had like a weird vanity in a bathroom that required the plumbing to come in from a different angle or, or, or do whatever. So that's wasted us a lot of time and money. And if we knew that at the outset and said, hey, the sink is going exactly here. So make sure your water lines are exactly here or the toilet is exactly here. I think we have a toilet in one of our houses that's like, a yeah. foot too far left or something yeah. like that. It's, it's like yeah. in a 30 inch space or 36 inch wide space. And you would think that it'd be centered at like the 18 inch mark out of 36 inches, but it's like six inches to the left. Yeah. So it just looks a little askew. Uh, a few 
points to piggyback off of that. One thing with respect to vanities to pay attention to is the height at which the rough plumbing is going to be coming out of the wall. Some vanities, if you have a hanging vanity, you're going to have a different, a different amount of clearance that you're going to want. Uh, if you have a vanity with an open bottom or with a shelf in it or with drawers, that's all going to impact how much clearance you have for the plumbing itself coming out of the wall. So if you have that, if you already have decided upon what type of vanity or like the specific vanity that you're going to be installing there, send that to your plumber so that they can rough in the plumbing accordingly. Um, one other thing that can be really helpful on this front is architectural plans would be a good step one, but specifically for the kitchen, if you're going to be purchasing cabinets from a cabinet supplier, oftentimes they'll do a rendering for you or a kitchen layout for free. And that's generally what your cabinet order is going to be based upon. So that layout uh, if you can give that to your plumber, that should be about as spot on as anything as far as where everything is going to be located. One other thing that we've gotten in trouble with was we had a, a line that was coming out of a wall that uh, ordinarily wouldn't have been a problem because it could have been hidden behind cabinets. But I think the the location at which it was coming out of the wall was where two cabinets were going to meet. Mm-hmm. So in order to affix them to the wall, the only way to get it flush was to move those lines. I just thinking back on these stories gives me anxiety. Do you want to talk about the next one? Yeah. So the next one we've got is to test any equipment we are keeping. In this example, it was HVAC equipment prior to removal or replacement. If it's not working at the time, assume the worst and replace it. This is a story. (laughs) I almost don't even want to get into the (laughs) specifics of the story because it's going to just unearth some real bad memories and some, some deep, deeply rooted emotions. Ryan's been going to some real intense therapy <laughs> about this. Incident. The short story, or the I guess the, the main takeaway from this is once everything is installed, and, and this is going to sound very obvious, but in practice, it's very easy to gloss over. Once anything is installed that's going to be a, a final fixture or that is like a significant piece of equipment in the building, test out the system at the first opportunity. We had installed, we had replaced the HVAC equipment in a house fairly recently and put in a new condenser outside, a new furnace and air handler in the basement. And we had made some very minor modifications to the ductwork in the house. Many of the walls in the house weren't even exposed. So we were relying on the existing ductwork, which we assumed wasn't going to be brand new, but it had been functioning previously when we purchased the house. And even after that point, we'd been using it for heating in the cooler months. So we had reasonable assumptions that it would be functional. But once the new equipment went in, as we started to experience some more extreme swings in weather, uh, specifically into like the, the real intense heat of summer here in New Jersey, it wasn't particularly, I guess for a brand new system, the, a layman would not have come to the conclusion or may not have come to the conclusion that the cooling was working as you would expect for a brand new system. So that unearthed the whole series also of brand new future system issues. Is a bit, yeah. Yeah, that's that's fair. The main takeaway for us is that had we tested everything the moment that the new condenser and the new furnace and air handler were installed and we had tried to essentially troubleshoot the system at the first opportunity any remedies that we would have had to take to fix it or to improve upon it would have been a lot easier because we would have been less far along with all the finish work. Reminds me, we actually have a house where we've just put in such a new system and we've never tested it. So <laughs> we're about to close up all the walls. So. This is why we have the mistakes channel to it's chronicle great. our mistakes. It's a good, good reminder. Yeah. This was a huge saga. It, it was uh, very stressful to resolve this because we were selling it simultaneously as we found out this problem. And yeah, the actual, the, yeah. ironically, the root of the issue more than anything seemed to be that the returns to the system were undersized relative to the amount of air it needed to be flowing into the yeah. system. I think the root of the issue is that the guy that did the HVAC work right. was an idiot. So right. that's you know a different issue. Oh, this is a, another good one, which is landscaping. So, so this is more so in the context of flips, but um, we had a flip recently where we didn't really pay any attention to the landscaping until the very last moment. So we had... A, 
uh, we bought the house in the winter. We renovated it throughout the spring and then we listed it for sale in the summer. But we didn't really do anything besides, I think we cut the grass maybe like three times and this whole time we owned it and like removed the snow and whatever else. And so when it was time to sell it, first, the landscaping looked terrible because we hadn't done anything to it. And second, we just had neglected the outside of the house. So that that meant that we couldn't really advertise it until the very end because we ended up doing the siding and painting outside as one of the last things that we did when hypothetically it could have been the first thing. So I think retrospectively, if we had cared about the landscaping and the exterior of the house first, we could have sort of pre-sold the house before the interior was done because the exterior would have looked new and nice. But right. as Oft- it was... Oftentimes yeah. flippers will advise to work from the outside in. Right. And I think that's a we, lesson we could have learned from. I think, uh, I, I remember carrying so much mold to this house. I mean, like, I think like we each, we, we, we each drive like small to medium sized SUVs. Mm-hmm. And I think we each filled up the entire, from the driver's seat back. Yeah. I think we filled up from the floor to the ceiling, each of our trucks like twice. Oh, at least. I think I did three or four times. Yeah. yeah. I think you you went over and you bought some potted plants or some plants oh, yeah. for transfer into the house. And uh, I think they were like the saddest little plants. It was like, like I'm sure that you just got the least expensive, you know, whatever that we had. It was just like, I remember maybe like a week after you planted because we didn't like water them or do anything like driving up and you see these like little tiny, like like two stems that are just like <laughs> dying. There's also, <laughs> there's also, as John knows uh with his green thumb there's kind of an art or a, a nuance to yeah. to landscaping and once again i think just having a plan would have mitigated a lot of these issues yeah. much earlier on um <laughs> first and foremost wanting to do something earlier on but secondly knowing exactly what we were going to do so that we could plan accordingly and source the proper plants and give them time to kind of acclimate to their new environment i, I remember I, I planted these two plants down in uh south jersey uh, a couple years ago and i just planted them to sort of provide um privacy in the back and i just forgot about them and uh we, we had somebody maintaining the, the stuff and i sort of told them initially like hey don't don't do anything to these plants like these are like privacy plants and then i went back down there like four or five months ago and these plants are like trees. They're like enormous. <laughs> and I'm like, oh my God. I guess you got the privacy you I know, after. they got the privacy. So, I guess there's some little nuggets from this that are relevant. If you're new to this, if you're new to renovating, if you're new to flipping, if you're new to the process of navigating building departments, it would be helpful to sit in on a building inspection from the building department because yeah. you'll start to get, you'll start to see certain patterns of what the building inspectors look for. Um, So just some things that I've picked up on or that we've noticed from multiple inspections. Um, One thing the inspectors tend to look for is a continuous handrail. So what that means is on the staircase, you can't have an exposed end of the handrail. So if you're gonna grab, handrail is obviously the portion of the railing that you grab onto as you go down the stairs. And As opposed to the foot rail, which is used for skating. <laughs> <laughs> I recognize that that was a redundant explanation. Um, so the end of that, rather than just being one kind of parallel cylinder running from top to bottom and kind of mimicking the slope of the staircase, the ends need to have a quote-unquote return which is essentially a 90 degree angle back into the wall so that there's not an exposed portion of the handrail that something could get caught on. So like if you're wearing a baggy sweatshirt or something like that and you're kind of running down the stairs, if it doesn't have a return, then your sweatshirt could get caught on it and you could go flying down the stairs or perhaps worse, tear your most beloved sweater. sweater. That's a really bad one, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I think there are a few other things too, like ensuring construction debris is removed from everywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, we've had stuff where debris has been in attics or crawl spaces or basements is a problem. I, I've had inspectors often check to see if there's an anti-tip bracket on stoves mm-hmm. is a, yeah, big a big one. one. Yeah. Or if the dishwasher, the dishwasher is mounted, that's yeah. a big one. So, having approved plans on the job site is something plans. you should always be doing regardless. Um, yeah. But also probably keeping them in a safe place is... Yeah. Another mistake we could learn from. <laughs> bathroom exhaust, that's a big one. Exhausting outside. Um, all bathroom exhausts have to exhaust to something that leads outside. We've gotten, gotten on that one before. So, yeah. 
the next one's a little bit specific, but it's the HVAC permitting process. So that uh, this is specific to New Jersey and some of the municipalities that we're working, but I think it's probably generalizable to other places, which is that when you file, when you pull a permit to do work, uh, people think of the different trades. And so the trades would be like the plumber, the electrician. There's usually also a separate fire permit. But in some cases, there's a mechanical permit, which sometimes incorporates uh, HVAC work. But in some municipalities, that's wrapped into the building permit, or I've also seen the plumbing permit. And this is always like a big source of confusion because it's it 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 gets the extent to say like do I need to have a licensed HVAC professional's license to do this or when is the inspection going to be scheduled is it with with the plumbing or with the building or separately or whatever so the general piece of advice is if you're doing your own you know flip and, and you're essentially being the GC or thinking about it it's probably worthwhile to figure out do I need to have a licensed HVAC person sign off on all this sort of stuff. Do I need to have like HVAC plans? Because sometimes if there's a mechanical tech sheet, like a, if you need a mechanical permit, then you're going to need mechanical plans to show duct work. Um, so we, we've gotten burned by that before. Yeah. And often the the way to go about finding the answer here is just to call the building department. Most times, unless you have a subcontractor who has done extensive work in that one municipality, there's no better source than hearing it from the building department themselves. Although sometimes you will get varying answers depending on who you speak to. Yeah, that's a whole nother time. I think we did, we did an episode <laughs> yeah. on the building department. Which yeah. is really so when updating an existing mechanical system, <laughs> this is the same. <laughs> test every component of it beforehand and ensure that it will adequately serve the future intended use. So I think this is actually, this is very similar to the story that we told before about the HVAC. But I think I had a different thought in mind when I shared this one. The approach that we've taken to most of our projects is that they've been full guts and they've been full guts for a reason. They've mostly been vacant buildings. They've been out of commission for several years. And even before that, the plumbing, electrical, and HVAC had all been quite dated and probably in need of repair. But on a lot of these projects, or maybe on a, on a select few of these projects, there probably were scenarios where we could have salvaged some element of the plumbing system or of the yeah. electrical system. A lot of my projects we've salvaged yeah. a lot of stuff. Yeah. 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 So uh, just from a, from a cost standpoint, uh, if there's a reasonable way to test the existing systems, then you should do it because you can maybe save yourself some money. This also, I think holds true for just kind of inspecting like every element of a property before you just go and assume that everything is trash it's easy for it's easy to jump to the conclusion that something is trash when you see that it's surrounded by other trash. But oftentimes you'll find some salvageable nuggets, uh, maybe an old door that's actually in pretty good shape or old molding that is maybe got a few extra layers of paint on it. We, than you we had like, a boiler, but, I think, in a house uh, yeah. recently that we thought was destroyed and works great. Yeah. So that's a several thousand dollars savings. Yeah. You know. The next one we have here is making sure all insurance policies name either you as the owner or the general contractor as an additional insured. So this is another legal component of it. But we, we touched on this a little bit with the construction process before we're dealing with subcontractors and whatever else. But it, it's generally a good requirement and probably is a requirement for your general liability insurance and your workers' compensation insurance and everything like that to ensure that anyone who works on anything that you do either has their first has their own insurance policy um, as maybe required and then names you, the owner or the GC as an additional insured. This is like a, a lot of subcontractors don't like to do this because it's just more work for them to call their insurance company or maybe they actually don't have insurance or whatever else. But we've never gotten into a situation where we've actually gotten in trouble by this, but it's something, it's the sort of thing where it's in the back of my head a lot. And yeah. uh, it worries me that uh, if we don't have it, you know, it, it concerns me that that we may not have it. I think it's one of those so, things that if it's a, it's a practice you want to get into, or it's yeah. a good practice to get into because... If you don't maintain that, then it's only a matter of time before someone catches you. Yeah, or you get audited. Right. And then, yeah. So this uh, other comment is, is, is along the same lines, which is make sure that all subcontracts provide evidence of insurance and a license. So, you know, in general, if you're pulling permits on a project, we had, we had a whole thing about licensed general contractors and, and licensed plumbers and whatever else in a different episode. But in general, if you're pulling permits for a project, you're going to need to have subcontractors that have their own licenses for that 
trade, that, that component of what they're doing. And it's very helpful to have those licenses on file. So if anything goes wrong or anything happens or you have an insurance claim or whatever else, you have evidence that the person working for you is actually licensed. Uh, next one we've got is not having capital for pending projects. I think this is perhaps a little bit unique to the way that we operate, but I think the idea is that we typically raise money on a project by project basis. And if we are generally, we get funding from our capital partners upon closing the property. So usually at closing, they will formalize all of the agreements, sign the operating agreement. They'll wire money to the entity that is buying the property or to the title company itself. And, and then we close. But up until that point, there's generally some pre-purchase due diligence that we undertake. Oftentimes it's an oil tank sweep, property inspection. Those are generally the big two. Sometimes we'll prepay some expenses, maybe an architect. Maybe you have uh, to bind insurance or yeah. something. Yeah. A lot of times we're, I think, getting into the habit of bringing the architect in to survey the property before we close so that the architectural plans are at least in process by the time we close, just to trim down on the timeline a little bit. So having cash on hand to float those kinds of things is nice. If you have your own cash, great. If not, it's perhaps worth considering with your capital partner. Yeah, structuring it so maybe you can get the capital infusion or investment or whatever prior to actually closing. Although the the, the velocity, uh, as uh, one of my favorite quotes is, everything is happening in real time, <laughs> which is a very great statement. So this is a good the, one here. Sorry, oh, no, no, just sorry. one last point on that. Yeah. The one downside to doing that is if you're going to spend that money before acquiring the property, then you should have a pretty good sense that you're actually going to close on the property. I would say we've probably, in the last year, we've probably lost $3,000 or so on deals that yeah. just haven't closed. This section is, is a good one, which is following up on any impediments to future tasks and the timing of them. So I, I, the, the idea here is that when you're doing a construction project, again, we've touched on this a little bit in, in past episodes, but when you're doing a construction project, there are things that are prerequisites for other tasks to happen. And there are other tasks that can happen simultaneously with each other. And identifying which tasks you're, you're dealing with is very important. One great example that we, we wrote specifically in this mistake is getting an architect lined up for plans. So usually having plans is a prerequisite to do almost anything with a bigger project, it's, it's a prerequisite even to get subcontractors in there to give you bids. Because normally, if you're doing a big job, they'll just say, okay, well, just give me the plans and I'll take a look at what the plans say. So if you don't have the plans, then, and you're waiting for your draftsman or your architect to draft them, then you're just doing nothing. You're literally waiting for that to happen. So what we, what we have sort of done, I would say not with a lot of um, regularity, but is, is create Gantt charts which are essentially charts that show what tasks need to happen before other tasks and then show what tasks can happen simultaneously. And so having an architect draw plans, that's a prerequisite, but plumbing and electricity and HVAC could probably go in all at the same time in the rough stage, but those would have to happen before say installing drywall or flooring or whatever else. But you know, to the landscaping example, landscaping can happen almost anytime. Although you probably don't want to repave your driveway if you're going to use a dumpster and you probably are going to need a dumpster until you're through, you know, most of the construction phase. So just, you can extrapolate just from even those handful of examples, all the different complexities that's going on. So being very sensitive to things that are sort of roadblocks to your next task is very, very important, particularly when time is very, very much money in the uh, the real estate game. And those those roadblocks may be different, or sorry, the these will not be the same or may not be the same project to project, right. uh, depending on what your scope is for a specific project. Right. This is one that I guess we can go through, touch on this quickly, um, a regular oversight of existing properties. So we've had... I would say over the last year or so, we went into kind of like buying and property management mode pretty aggressively. And we got to the point where we had a number of projects ongoing at any point in time, in addition to our existing portfolio of properties. And I would say it got to the point where we had two dozen properties locally that we were, yeah. that we either owned or were renovating or were managing. And one, thing that we were we did not have systematized in any way was providing any sort of monthly check-in or quarter like periodic check-ins on the properties to make sure that 
things were going okay over there. It was kind of like, it was a very reactive approach. So unless we were alerted by a tenant or by a neighbor or by... By chance. <laughs> or by the city, yeah. God forbid. We didn't really have it on our radar to check in on these properties. So going forward, we we're trying to more proactively implement a system whereby we check in on the properties every two weeks or monthly or quarterly, depending on their occupancy status, depending on what the use of the property is, who's there, things like that. I think part of the idea too is empowering anyone who ever goes to the property for some reason to be our eyes and ears at the property. So oftentimes we've seen it where we'll have someone go to the property to do something and they'll just be sort of like single-minded on doing that one task and they'll just not observe other very obvious things that I think if the owner of the property or I or whoever had gone there would have you know noticed like, hey, all the light bulbs are out in the in the hallway even though they went there to fix the hand railing, you know, so, so something like that. So the, the idea is empowering people that are going to the properties anyways to say, hey, since you're there, just check, make sure, you know, the heating is working okay, make sure all the doors are locked, the grass is cut, whatever. This is particularly helpful at Airbnb, at our Airbnb properties because we have consistent turnover. We don't have guests there who are there for a prolonged period of time often. So... If you have a let's say if you have a tenant there on a twelve month lease, when a light bulb goes out or uh, something else happens that is kind of like a routine maintenance type issue, they'll let you know. For these Airbnb properties, you have guests in there for maybe two, three days at a time, sometimes a little bit longer, but they're less invested in the long term well being of the property, so they'll only really focus on the things that are relevant for their short stay. Right. Um, so we have our cleaner go in there every. Every time there's a vacancy and when the cleaner goes in there, it's, we're, I guess, trying to train them to look out for those types of things. Like, is the, are, are all the lights working? Is the backyard clean? How's the landscaping looking? Do you notice anything that's anything loosely leaking. affixed to the wall? Yeah, yeah, a, leaks, a big, a big like one that. with Airbnb that I've had before is, uh, Sometimes tenants will, sometimes, you know, say you have a, a roof leak, or like a very minor roof leak and, you know, a, an Airbnb guest might look up and say, oh, there's some water in the ceiling or there's a stain, but because they're not there for very long, they don't notice that that stain continues to grow. And so every subsequent person there is like, oh, there's a little stain. And then, you know, over the course of four months, there's a, that small stain turns into a huge stain and then it's a big problem. Whereas someone is living there normally, they'd be like, oh, this stain keeps getting bigger. Maybe I should tell the landlord about it or do something about it. So maybe we can talk about one last one. Because we've, uh, I realized we've made so many mistakes. We're basically in August. <laughs> We're still. still in August. <laughs> Just to round it out, uh, these next two that we have here, I think are, are one is a repetition and one is very specific to the way that we operate. But I will say one thing, which is visiting properties before home inspection. That's a big mm. one that we yeah. messed up on. This is a little bit of the case that we had a, um, shall we say, a uh, someone working for us that uh, probably wasn't doing uh, the sort of job that they might have otherwise done. But um, we had we were selling a property and there was a home inspection scheduled and we didn't really know when the home inspection was happening or that it was happening. And we just left a bunch of stuff at the home, tools and permit stickers. I think we left a sticker that said we had been denied, you know, uh, an inspection because we had to you know, make a few minor changes. I think it was actually for like a non-continuous handrail. Yeah, not, yeah, it was for a non-continuous handrail. Which, yeah. which, as you may recall, is for holding on to as you with go down the hand, stairs. With, with your hand, hand. With your hand, yeah. Although, I guess if you don't have hands, that's a very, it's a very hand-focused term. You it's know insensitive. I mean? You just say rail. Yeah. Crazy. <laughs> but, um, so the, the, the buyer went there and, uh, you know, notice all these things. And I, I think, uh, you know, there, I think there were some, there was like a faucet that was turned off because one of the valves was turned, was, was off. And there were a bunch of little minor things that I think had... Same with the dishwasher. The dishwasher, like had someone been there for literally five minutes just to make sure that everything was was working, we could have resolved these things. But because they saw all these issues that that appeared to be wrong, um, they made. I think that that caused them to have assumptions about other things in the property being wrong or messed up, and so it turned into a snowball of uh, of bad stuff. So, well, big thing is if you're selling a property, be aware of when things like the inspection or even the appraisal are. Talk to your broker and have the communication about it because. Um, you can probably save off stave off a lot of issues just by being cognizant of what's going on. Yeah, staying with that theme, adding events to your calendars or having some way of being organized with deadlines and notifications and reminders 
that's huge for us. Um, oftentimes in some of these municipalities, you may not have an inspection for three weeks or the inspector may not be available for three oh, weeks. Yeah. So it's definitely important to mark that on your calendar because there's no better way to get on the bad side of an, an inspector to, than to no show for an inspection. Yeah. Um, similarly, <laughs> yeah, similarly for, um, getting back to knowing your purchase contract, put the milestone dates in your calendar too. It's good to know when your inspection contingency, for example, wears off or when the, your mortgage com- uh, commitment date is in the context of the timeline of the deal, when your target closing date is and, and then uh, perhaps even more important than putting them into your calendar is actually look at your calendar and, and work around those dates. Right. Yeah, I was going to say we're going to be done by one more, which is a great one, which is, is for me, which just says explicitly prohibit smoking, which it's in this context means in your Airbnb. Don't allow people to smoke in your Airbnb. That's a good one. And don't <laughs> assume that your tenant or that your guests will know that it's just reasonable courtesy not to smoke in someone's home. Yeah, or break into the other apartment in your home and smoke in your bedroom and then deny it. That's a great one, too. Though those same guests did give us a five-star review. <laughs> well, they allowed, we allowed them to smoke in our homes. So. <laughs> I guess uh, that, that concludes volume one of <laughs> mistakes. Yeah, we have, I think at this place, we have several more volumes <laughs> to go. But uh, yeah, I mean, this, uh, I think it's been a little bit all over the place, but um, I'd love to, it is possible, I think on your, your podcasting, you know, app or whatever to leave comments and, you know, it, it's, we're pretty accessible to via uh, social media and email and whatever else through, um, through our website and uh, through our construction business. So if you have any, I'd be curious to hear feedback uh, if you thought that this episode was helpful or useful. And, and I'd also be curious to hear mistakes that you've made and if you've made the same mistakes, because that might not make us feel a little bit less bad uh, about the many mistakes that we've we've conducted or maybe we've we've made mistakes that no one else has ever made because um, we're just mavericks you know yeah I, it'd be great to hear from from anyone who's had similar experience but, but I think the most important thing to take away from all of this is you're going to m- make mistakes it's inevitable uh, I like the fact that we chronicle them now I actually hope that we continue to to log all of these mistakes on a consistent basis, because this has actually been, I think, a good reminder that some of these mistakes that we've made in the past, we are potentially still in violation of, yeah. uh, and that you know we should we should remedy that. But I urge you to log your mistakes, learn from your mistakes, and figure out how you're going to avoid them in the future. One mistake we didn't make is not logging our mistakes. <laughs> we did not make that mistake, <laughs> at least since August third, uh, whatever right. it was. Anyways, thank you guys for listening and we will see you at the next episode. Don't forget to visit us at BrickXBrickRealEstate.com for free content to help you along your real estate journey and to follow along on our projects. Subscribe and rate us on your favorite podcast app and engage with us online via Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, and BrickXBrickRealEstate.com. See you next time on the Brick by Brick Podcast.